around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Welcome to Season 2 of Terranauts. I hope that you enjoyed listening to our summer series replays and that you're looking forward to a brand new season. I know that I am excited to bring it to you. This season, we're going to spend more time exploring the world of the Terranaut, people who go to space all the time without ever leaving the planet. In addition to interviews with interesting Terranauts, this season we're also planning regular installments of the Terranauts' Guide to Leaving the Planet, where we'll explore the history of humankind's adventures off the planet. But today, we're going to kick off Season 2 with a very special guest. Colleen Merchant has seen an awful lot of the world of the Terranaut. Her career has taken her from the tropical heat of Houston summers to the frozen wasteland of Saint-Hubert, Quebec in January. She has worked for both NASA and the Canadian Space Agency in roles ranging from purely technical to leading teams to strategic planning at the national level. She's developed new rendezvous procedures for the space shuttle and spent hours in mission control watching those procedures play out on orbit. She worked on the international team that designed and built the space station and the international flight control team that continues to support it on orbit today. Although her current job has taken her away from the world of space, she remains a Terranaut at heart. Colleen Merchant, welcome to Terranauts. Thank you, Ian. I'm really happy to be here. So so let's start with, uh, you, you've had an international career, but where did you grow up? What was your um, childhood like? Well, I was born, believe it or not, in North Dakota. And my dad was in the Air Force there. And we moved to a little tiny itty bitty town just across the river from Cornwall. And it's a big farm country, but my parents were both teachers. And so I grew up in a very rural area and uh, had a good time with it. So when you grew up, were you interested in space? Was that something that you thought you would do with your life when you were a kid? In an abstract way, yes. So it started when I was seven years old and my parents made me stay up way past my bedtime to watch man land on the moon. Right. And I remember I was wearing my little yellow footy pajamas. That's how exciting this was. Yes, yes. And then, um, you know, my dad loved to sit out back. He owned 100 acres. So we'd sit out back and just look at the sky because in a rural area back then, you could see a lot of it. Right, right. And my uncle at one point, who was pretty much a mentor of mine, he asked me once when we were looking up, he said, how far do you think that goes? What do you think infinity is? So it made me think about these things in a very, very grand and abstract way. Right. Yeah, the moon landing is one of my earliest memories as well. Um, So, but your first real job was working at NASA. How did that happen? (laughs) It happened because I'd taken a, a test in the U.S., that was, you know, the results would go to um, government agencies. So my dad encouraged me to take this test and it took a whole day and it was actually quite stimulating and fun. And at the end of the day, uh, I got a call from someone at NASA just out of the blue 
and said, uh, oh, this is so-and-so from the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, right. wondering if right. you'd be interested in a job. I thought it was a joke. So I said, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I thought it was one of my friends, so I hung up. And right. Right. <laughs> I got a call back. This really is so-and-so from the Johnson. You, mu- you must have had a good score on the test, I guess. <laughs> yeah, not on the phone call, the phone interview. No, no. But that's uh, that's how I wound up there and uh, just headed on down. So so when did you start working at NASA? I started working there, oddly enough, about two weeks before the Challenger accident. So that well, that's was like something, yeah. Early 1986, something like that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So so you uh, and your first job was in in Houston. Yes. That must have been a little bit of of culture shock for a girl from upstate New York. Well, yeah, just to show you how geographically um, non-inclined I was, I was expecting to see those saguaro cactuses and tumbleweeds. Right. Right. When I I drove with my little U-Haul down into Clear Lake, Texas, where uh, I was going to be staying, and it was raining, and uh, there was there was nothing of yes. the sort. It was quite a shock. And when it rains in Houston, it really rains in Houston. <laughs> <laughs> I think my wife and I, when we drove into Houston, the first time we drove in was a in a a thunderstorm, the likes of which I'd never. We we almost had to pull off the highway because you you couldn't see. Yeah, I guess I mean it was like down there. Um. So. You know, apart and aside from the rainstorm, what was it like arriving at NASA as a new graduate, uh, really in the, you know, that was at the heart of the space shuttle program. And then having the Challenger disaster just as you arrived, it must have been a really interesting window into the whole NASA culture. It was actually, and it was a good window, I have to say, for all the trauma around it, because there was a whole cohort of us that got hired. And obviously, we looked at the accident as just a horrific tragedy. And But the people around us who had been working there, it was much more like a lot in their heart. And these these people were so devastated. And I have to say, no matter who you were, maybe there was a slight sense of guilt because everybody there had the sense that they were the ones that were putting man in space, were executing these missions. And it was a really good introduction to that culture of closeness and family and purpose. Right. And and, you know, to me, that 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 is the culture of the Terranaut, that that no one who, who worked at NASA, whether you worked in MCC or wherever, if you worked at NASA, you flew spacecraft. Ab- you didn't mean it didn't matter that you didn't get on them. You flew them. Yep, absolutely. Everybody was made to feel a part of what was going on. Uh, and it, it was really interesting. Uh, I worked at Johnson uh, a little bit after that, but I think we crossed. You were coming up while I was going down. But um, one of the things that was really interesting even then, it was six or seven years after Challenger, whenever there was a launch, uh, you know, everybody would stop what they're doing and go to a room where there's a television set and watch it. And and no one ever left the room until the solid boosters separated from, from the vehicle, which, of course, was when the Challenger accident happened. But it was so... Uh, it was so traumatic for everybody who's there that when you watched the launch, no one ever dared leave until that that moment. It's still, you know, the mark was still on everybody there when I worked there. Yep. 
And I, I agree. You know, when we uh, when Neptech worked on return to flight after the Columbia uh, disaster, I remember saying to people that I, when I went to the first launch, which didn't launch, but still, it, it was almost it was like it's like there'd been a disaster or a death in the family. It was like going to help uh, rebuild the barn after it had burnt down or something. That was the the feeling that you got was that everybody was there uh, and really wanted to contribute to to bringing it. Uh, back. It was not, it wasn't a feeling of, um, you know, contractors and suppliers and working on the program. It was much more than that. Yes, I agree. So, um, so you got through the Challenger um, recovery. Uh, um, What was your job as a flight controller on the shuttle program? Well, what my job was, was I supported the flight dynamics officer and like every day when I would go into work, I designed missions. So they were rendezvous missions specifically where you would have the space shuttle interacting with some other spacecraft or payload in space. So my job was to actually design those missions, the trajectory. I was like the GPS of the the shuttle program for those type of missions. So, So so people may not know that the flight dynamics officer does have one of the cooler handles uh, in mission control because you get to be called FIDO. <laughs> That's right. So so what goes into planning the flight dynamics uh, for a space shuttle mission? Like how long does it take? And, and especially how long did it take in 1986? Well, uh, back then we usually set out about two years. So if a, a flight was planned then we'd back off two years to start our portion of the mission planning. It, it took quite a while. It was complicated. And, and what kind of stuff was involved? Well, um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll talk about a specific example that's sure. like the, to me, the epitome of what my career culminated in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was um, STS-49, which was the Intelsat rescue mission. So if you don't right. mind me taking a few minutes. No, no, please, please. I think it's it's great. I mean, it, it's uh, if you haven't done it, you don't realize that, you know, you're you, you do divide your career up into flights when you work in that job. Yeah. Right. Like you, you, you don't think in dates. You think in flights. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. So the Intelsat rescue mission it, right away, it was a, it was a pretty cool um, pretty cool thing, because what happened was that the Intelsat um, payload or the, the satellite had been delivered into an improper and highly elliptical orbit because its okay. Titan three booster didn't work. Okay. So um, NASA and the manufacturer talked about or the operator rather, talked about it and decided that, yeah, we're going to try a rescue mission. And okay. for for me, I got assigned to design this. It was absolutely wonderful because it was a fairly complicated mission. So sure. what happened was you had this highly elliptical orbit that Intelsat was in. And in order for the shuttle to rendezvous with it, it would have to maneuver. And it's highly unusual right. to have the space shuttle um, going after or rendezvousing with another vehicle that is also maneuvering. Right. And and just just you know I mean it's an esoteric point about about orbital mechanics but I assume the shuttle was in a more or less circular orbit and you're trying to intercept something that's in a highly elliptical orbit uh, that's that's a little exciting right Well it is but that's why we had to um, work with the IntelSat folks 
to see if their onboard guidance, navigation, and control could actually get it into an orbit with which the shuttle could rendezvous. Right. So they decided that they could. And the other, the other really great thing for me was um, during my tenure down in Houston, I had developed a new means of um, let's say reducing the fuel use on orbit by launching right. Uh, with uh, better accuracy and it involved an imaginary plane and some imaginary numbers and so when you do something new like that you have to go talk to the flight directors and the astronauts and let them know hey here's something new this is what i plan on doing this is how i'm designing the mission and and very exciting when you get to word, use the word imaginary with that group of people. Okay. Yeah. So when I went in and described what my plan was, um, one of the flight directors, Mike Collins, stood up and he said, that's stupid. And so nice. I just went, I went, well, why is that stupid? And so the, the meeting kind of broke up. But it turns out that um, one of the one of the folks who did the coding on the flight software went and tested it in the the simulator. And right. indeed, this algorithm did work. So we got to right. use it for the first time on this mission. Right. So for me, it was super exciting. It was great. It was also the maiden flight of Endeavor. So everything. Oh, was that right? OK. Yeah. yeah. Everything was looking rosy. So then, even though, you know, it was well-planned and everybody was all set, we'd been through our training, um, yes. nothing went as planned. <laughs> so when, when you go into a rendezvous with another object, well, the Intelsat made it into the proper orbit, so that was good. And right. the shuttle was in the proper orbit, but there's a certain point in time when the shuttle gets close enough to a satellite that you can't use your ground-based radar for your navigation. Right. right. So then you rely on your star trackers. Okay. So you get into the right angle, you know, with respect to the payload, and you turn the star trackers on and whammo bammo, you know, right where you are, relatively speaking. Well, oops, the star trackers, you know, weren't working. Ah. So you're close enough that you really need to back off. So there were, there were three attempts, three is a charm. So on the third uh, attempt, uh, we got the navigation working such that we could actually come up for the rendezvous. So, so again, I, I just back up for people who don't understand the nature of of orbital mechanics. It basically means that you only get close to the satellite once, probably once in orbit, right? Because it's in a different orbit, and there's just one point in the orbit where they're both in the same place at the same time, and that's why you kind of get these multiple attempts. Or were you actually in coplanar at that point? No, well, we're we're a bit coplanar. I mean, obviously, you know, you have the planar rotation that's not the same between the two, but it's right. not significant at that point. And yes, once per orbit, you get, if you look at a, well, once per orbit, you're getting a little bit closer and a little bit closer every time. Yes, yes. And so at one point, you know, before you're actually going to be in too close proximity, you have to do a maneuver such that you can back off a bit right? and then right. retry. Right. So anyway, once we got 
you know, all lined up and the rendezvous was imminent. Pierre Thuit, um had gone out for the, um, to capture the, the spacecraft. So there was kind of a circular mechanism on the bottom of the Intelsat satellite. And the, um, we had designed a, what we call the capture bar, which if you just clinked it on that round mechanism should have grasped onto the satellite and allowed it to manually be pulled into the bay. Okay. Um, but what happened was that, um, Dan Brandenstein was a pilot and thank goodness, what an awesome pilot. So Pierre Thuit attempted the capture. The latch didn't close and it uh-huh. sent the, the payload, the Intelsat satellite tumbling, which uh-huh. as you can imagine is just a hor- horrific problem. Sure, so sure. You've got an astronaut in the bay, you've got one on the arm and a pilot who can't see where the satellite is. So all we could do on the ground is listen as um, Pierre and Dan were talking and Dan piloting out of the vicinity. Right. And of course you've got um, your robotic arm operator that's getting Pierre to safety. So all this worked together. So then um, again, have to back off and there was a lot of consultation. Well, let's try it again. There was a second attempt, same thing happened. And so again, three's a third time's a charm. Right. Um, Right. The, you know, the crew talked to the EVA folks who talked to the um, folks who designed the capture bar and decided what we're going to do is send three astronauts out, which was right. first because uh, that's it's pretty yeah. Like, is, is there anybody? No, nobody left at home to turn off the lights. Yeah, okay. Out, it gets pretty cramped in the airlock, but they went yeah. out. And yeah. I think it was you who had um, mentioned to me the campfire configuration. The robotics guys, you know, this was obviously a legendary mission in their minds as well. And uh, they used to refer to the the position they came up with for the three crew members as the campfire position because it, it resembled them crouching around a campfire and they all had to reach out and grab the satellite at the same time or something. <laughs> yeah. So just a lot of really creative and innovative thinking going right. on. And so anyway, once the uh, satellite was captured, the motor, uh, the new motor was put in, replaced. And right. then, um, so, you know, I was on shift for the deployment as well. And so three, two, one, nothing happened. <laughs> oh, no, no. And you have to, you have to have the, you know, you have to be in the right part of the orbit to deploy it so that right back right long. so again you have to wait and wait and it happened that there was a problem with the deployment wiring and between uh. ground and the astronauts they got that all fixed and finally um on the, the next attempt it got successfully released right. and went on its merry way with its new motor back into geosynchronous orbit so were the crew outside the whole time while you're waiting for the next attempt to, to, to fire up the motor or? Oh, no, no. They were back in. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, we could tell war stories about like that, about mission control for, for days. It, and I'm sure we'd be interested. Um, other listeners, maybe not so much. So um, 
but the interesting thing is after having done that for like eight years, um, you decided to come to Canada and work at the Canadian Space Agency. So how did how did that happen? Well, my my family is very tight. Like I said, we grew up in a rural, rural area and my family has been there for a long time. So my cousins, second cousins, aunts and uncles, great aunts and uncles right. and the whole thing were super tight. And when I was in Houston, I, I got really homesick. And so yeah. Mark Garneau was down there at the time, and I was doing a bit of um, support for the Canex experiment that he was developing. And mm-hmm. I asked him, I said, do you ever get homesick? Because I'm really homesick. <laughs> and he, uh, he said, hey, I, I think they're looking for someone with just your qualifications up at the Canadian Space Agency, which is right across the river from where you grew up. Right. And so whammo, bammo, I was there. Wow. So to, to, you had to cross the border to come home. That's kind of an interesting. <laughs> well, I'm a dual citizen, so that helps. Oh, okay. So uh, now NASA and the CSA, uh, for those people who work in the business, know not the same thing. Nope. Um, w- what was it like moving from the NASA culture to the CSA culture? It was wonderful. And as much as I love NASA and all the really interesting things that they were doing, I found that the Canadian Space Agency had uh, more of a focus and they were able to do things in more depth. And I can remember saying to my my team when I was working um, in the robotic operations area, or the space station mm-hmm. operations area, saying, you do this so much better than you know, colleagues would, would be doing at NASA and they're like, no, no, very humble. And it just, it really just made me feel good. And it's, it's like a family there. And I always tell everybody, you know, I've, I've been in several departments now within the government of Canada. And in my mind, there's none better than the Canadian space agency. Well, that's, that's good to hear. But, you know, I imagine that that appreciation of the competence uh, at CSA, not necessarily something that was shared, especially by the, uh, let's just say, um, the, 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 um, the veterans at NASA who'd been doing this, you know, for 20 years. Um, and in the mid 90s, which is when you were there, this was a time when NASA was having to get used to the idea that they really were going to have to share some of that uh, operations uh, with not only with Canada, but with other international partners. Um, I imagine there were some pretty interesting conversations that came out of that. Oh, yeah. Um, obviously, you know, the, the NASA culture is and, you know, you can understand we are the best. We sure. are we are the kings in space. And so when, for example, we were negotiating our part in the International Space Station, I actually heard them say there is no way that Canada will ever be part of the critical path for space right. station. And yet right. when we negotiated the treaty, yes, indeed, we were in the critical path. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's something people probably don't under, understand is in the world of the space station, there are there are people who are operating that space station really around the world. Uh, but in the mid 90s, um, there was one mission control center and that was in Houston, Texas. Yeah. And we became the first remote part of the the Houston control center that there that there was. So we were a first. And yeah, and I uh, that must have been quite uh, an adjustment that some of your ex colleagues at NASA had to get used to. Well, I think I think it was. 
I think it was quite difficult for them. And there was also, I'd say, a hierarchy of flight controllers. So, you know, Canadian flight controllers were not looked at the same as the NASA flight controllers. Right. But I think we, we certainly overcame that. Well, and a lot of people might not understand, uh, you know, so it'd be useful to just explain what what was the process of becoming a flight controller? Because I I have said this before. I worked in mission control, but I was never a flight controller because I didn't have the qualification. Uh, Well, it took for me anyway, I'm speaking from my own experience. We had a Mm. very um, rigorous training program that took two years. So there was a lot of um, book study uh, classroom type study, and then it all culminated in getting into the control center and passing through um, increasingly difficult simulations. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I think a lot of people don't appreciate just how much time is spent in in sims when you're a flight controller. You spend an awful lot more time practicing all of the things that will go horribly wrong than actually sitting in MCC and watching them go right. Yeah, well, I've found that no matter how many things go wrong in the sim during the flight, there's always something different. Right. But but the whole point is that you've you've you're so used to sitting in that same chair with the same headset on dealing with problems that it's almost like you forget that you're actually got a spacecraft on orbit this time. It's just a problem you need to work in the parlance, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that was that was something that always impressed me was uh, was how unfazed MCC was when there were problems. It it was almost normal to be working on a problem rather than not. Yep, absolutely. Well, when you were not working on problems, you get people with that type of mindset that are super keen, super bright, used to working mm. problems. And you you can sometimes uh, get into a little bit of mischief when there's not oh, going on. Oh, really? Do tell. <laughs> uh, the, the infamous turkey incident. So okay. I, I was not working this mission, but some friends of mine were. It was not a rendezvous mission. It was, we used to call it boring holes in the sky. You know, <laughs> it would just be, Keep the you know keep the shuttle moving in you know a particular yes. orbit so that we can do microgravity yes. or biological experiments or whatever. It was onboard experimentation, and right. so it was it was Thanksgiving in the U.S. And right. so you know these guys were sitting around in the front room getting super bored. Yes. So one of them decided, hey, it would be really cool if we could. Um, superimpose a turkey in the shuttle payload bay on the big screen. Well, of course. And play a big joke on, you know, the rest of the control team. So conspiring with the flight dynamics officer, they said, okay, let's do this. So the flight dynamics officer calls up to the flight director and says, "Uh, flight, uh, we got a bit of an issue here. Um, It appears that within, I don't know, a certain period of time, uh, sure. We have a potential conjunction with a Turkish satellite. Right, right. a Turkish satellite. Yeah, I see. A, a so wait, uh, at the time. <laughs> yeah, and for anybody in MCC, a conjunction, um, you know, is not a good thing, right? No, that's a boom. <laughs> so, right. So anyway, the flight director's like, "All right, well, keep me posted. You know, be planning um, maneuvers to." Right, 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 right. So anyway, this goes on for quite some time. And of course, up in the viewing gallery, you've got people from D.C. 
and right. other important places. And so the yes. flight director is getting really antsy and going, um, sure. excuse sure. me. So they're trying to get the picture of the turkey rotisserie up on the main screen, on the big right. screen. It won't come up. Right. So anyway, the uh, flight director comes down personally to uh, the flight dynamics officer after a certain point in time because – the sure. the crew folks were going. Do we need to wake the crew up because the crew is sleeping? <laughs> this is not going as planned. No, right. so they're all in a tizzy, getting ready to wake the crew up. You've got all right. people calling Washington, saying, uh, "We think we have a problem here. This Turkish satellite." What are these right, right. International incident. Exactly. Right. So the flight director comes down and says to the flight dynamics officer, "You better tell me right now that this is a joke." or all hell is going to break loose. Right. And so my, my friend, the, the flight dynamics officer, had he had to say, it, it's a joke. And he's like, oh, my God, right. I'm going to lose my job. <laughs> so so it was supposed to be that, that they were going to – flight, we have a conjunction, and there was supposed to be a big picture of a, of a turkey on a rotisserie up on the screen, and everybody's supposed to get a laugh. But instead, no one ever saw anything. That's right. Nobody saw the turkey. Nobody clued in that turkey did not have a right. satellite. Right. So it was, of course. Yeah. And, you know, so people get bored and they love the excitement, but at a certain point, it's, uh, well, yes, uh, I, I remember saying to, to a reporter once who asked me about, uh, some, when we were working on, on sort of on return to flight and inspecting the shuttle every time. And they said, are you excited about the flight? And I remember saying to them, uh, a good day in space is a boring day in space. <laughs> <laughs> Excitement is exactly what we're not trying to have. And then, of course, it was one of the missions. There was damage and it ended up being a little bit more exciting than we wanted it to be. And I, I remember doing another interview saying, yeah, well, it wasn't as boring as we'd hoped. But um do you miss working in space? Oh my gosh, yes! I absolutely love that world. I love the people. It's a uh, it's a certain vibe. It's got yes. so much energy and so much passion, so much purpose, and it's yes. also so stimulating because there's so much that's unknown. There's there's mm-hmm. so much to explore. Yes, it's an environment where people are really encouraged to bring their A game every day. Yep. Yeah. Well, um, I think we're almost out of time, but is there anything else that you want to uh, say to folks out there, uh, either people who are really interested in stories of Terranauts or maybe even some people out there who who, uh, might be interested in in becoming one one day? Oh, well, I think it's just I would advocate it. It's a wonderful world. There are wonderful people. And if you have a brain that likes stimulation that that complex problem set and the ability to think big Mm. is your place all right well colleen it has been great talking with you and and talking with you again and uh, your passion for being a terranaut comes across loud and clear thanks for joining us on terranauts oh thanks ian bye-bye bye Well, that's going to do it for Season 2, Episode 1 of Terranauts. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you are enjoying listening to Terranauts, please support the podcast by rating and reviewing it on your favorite podcast server, or recommending the podcast to a friend, or responding to the show with some feedback. If you'd rather catch the podcast on YouTube, you can find versions posted on my YouTube channel. Just search for Ian Christie on YouTube. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon.
Let's keep the chatter down.